morning, Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. And you are watching AM to DM. Another news cycle, another plot twist. Let's get into it, y'all. Here's a tweet from you, Isaac. Oh. Oh, hello. Uh, a woman on the street just yelled, shit, uh, and then looked up from her phone and said, that wasn't directed at you. It's just the Supreme Court. And a woman standing next to her simply nodded. Yeah, she said shit a lot louder than you, Jordan. <laughs> uh, Hillary George Parkin replied with a story of her, home, her own saying, a woman staring angrily at her phone just walked right into me, and you know, Today I'm gonna let it slide because aren't we all? Uh, which, you know, when New Yorkers are giving each other passes, you know, mm -hmm. it's just going down. Uh, Litza had this to say, when I read the news this morning, I reflexively yelled, no, and inadvertently scared my dog, uh, spent the next several minute, minutes cuddling with him and giving him treats. The pets are shook. The pets are shook. The people on the streets are shook. Uh, it was a, as you just said, plot twist. Quite a plot twist. And here's the thing, right, because of the unique position of the Supreme Court, the fact that obviously it's uh, one of our, you know, governmental institutions, uh, still stands. Um, but also just that, you know, all kinds of issues make their way to the Supreme Court that can implicate, you know, and impact our lives at any moment. Listen, you know, today is the anniversary of the beginning of the Stonewall riot. So I'm thinking about the fact in 2015, you know, just in a moment, you know, a five to four decision, my life was changed because marriage equality became legal in this country. So, you know, every person in this country yesterday, our lives were impacted. Was by impacted this by this news. I yeah. remember, you know, it's funny talking about yesterday yeah. as if it was such a long time ago, Woo! because this really did just change the game uh -huh. so quick. But I remember I was looking at Chris Geithner, watching his timeline. He's been following SCOTUS so closely and just him tweeting out, okay, so no retirement announcements. Again, this was 22 hours ago. He was like, and to be clear, that can happen at any time, but it might have happened right now, and none of that happened. And then just a mere few hours later, boom, the yeah. news dropped. And it changed everything. Yeah. And, and I was. I think we talk about this on the show. The time when news jumps out of your phone, mm -hmm. jumps off of the timeline, and all of a sudden is happening around you. Yeah, I just feel like in that moment also Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her trainer her personal trainer must have looked at each other like, oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "Go, all right, girl, drink some water. Keep doing those you squats. Gotta be healthy, sister. Well, let's take it to the timeline. This was, of course, a seismic historic moment. Uh, where were you? What was your initial reaction when you found out about Justice Kennedy's retirement? We're going to be talking about it a lot this morning. Let us know using the hashtag am to dm Listen, Justice Anthony Kennedy's retirement is effective July 34th. Uh, I'm sorry, July 31st. BuzzFeed Supreme Court correspondent Chris Geithner joins us now to take a look back at his career and what comes next. Ooh, a tan suit, bold. Good morning, Hello. Chris. Hi there. Hi there. It's very dramatic, very dramatic background. Well, of course, as someone who has followed and reported on the Supreme Court for years now, um, we wanted to start, you know, how surprised were you by this? Uh, where were you? Can you basically describe, you know, your first 10 minutes as a Supreme Court correspondent after such a huge announcement? Yeah, I mean, it, it it was not that different from the the people you ran into on the street, except uh, I had uh, just come back to the office, our, our BuzzFeed DC office, and uh, everybody had, in fact, just told me, like, congratulations, you're done with the term, you made it through. <laughs> and I sat down and was, was working on finishing up some stuff and got the email in our, our inbox that... Uh, Justice Kennedy had sent a letter to the president and would be retiring effective July 31st. And and then it was go. And then it was go. And then it was go. Chris, I want to ask, do we know why he's retiring? I mean, he, he 
is an, an old older gentleman. Um, he's been a, a judge for 43 years, more than 43 years, 30 of which on the Supreme Court. And, uh, and he, he obviously decided now, now was the time. And I think there's going to be a lot of discussion in the coming days uh, about the, the fact that he, he clearly made a decision that retiring now when there was a, a Republican president, when there was a Republican-led Senate, was the time when he wanted to to ensure that, that his successor would be uh, nominated and hopefully eventually for his mind confirmed under those circumstances. Okay, and listen, you know, I try not to read straight white men's minds, uh, but but to that point that you're making, you know, and I feel like a lot of people were saying this, that this, you know, seemingly trying to uh, imply that this might be strategic, right? So is there anything we can deduce um, perhaps uh, from, you know, the timing of this decision about how uh, Justice Kennedy's thinking might line up with President Trump? Is that a fair, I mean, like, line to connect? No, I the, there's one reason why I don't think we can necessarily say that, and that has to do with this list that Trump put forward, this, this list of 25 names that from which he will select Supreme Court nominees. It's the list he used when he picked uh, now Justice Neil Gorsuch to take uh, Justice Scalia's seat. He has extended that list a few more names uh, but he, he still said he's going to go back to that list. And, and so I, I think that, that Justice Kennedy, as much as obviously the, the president who appoints a justice has the legacy, uh, there, there's an element that, that of everything that President Trump has done over the, the past two years, three years since he announced his campaign, one of the, the least mysterious things has been his uh, his his process for Supreme Court selections. And that's normally, in most administrations, one of the most closely held secrets. Mm. So uh, th there's a certain element of an unknown quantity that Kennedy could look at when he was deciding how, how, how and whether now was an okay time to do this. I see. All right, Geidner. Uh, you know he could look at his list of, right. of the 25 people who could potentially replace them. Right. All right, now, now Gunnar, I, I know Kennedy himself didn't love it when people referred to him as a swing voter, but he kind of was. Is there anyone <laughs> else on uh, the Supreme Court that we think might step up and fulfill that position? Well, I mean, uh, assuming, unless we're surprised by whoever, uh, however one of these 25 people, assuming one of them gets on the court, turn out, I mean, it, it is going to be the chief justice. The chief justice, uh, the court will have shifted to the right uh, quite quite dramatically uh, on some issues, um, and and the, the chief justice will now hold that that key fifth vote. And we we've seen a little bit this term of instances in which uh, his vote was the the key vote in the center, uh, and and we're going to be seeing that. Assuming that that one of these 25 ends up getting confirmed and act, acts how we suspect they'll act, uh, it will be the chief justice in the center. 
Okay. Um, in a moment, we're going to talk with BuzzFeed News reporter, your colleague, Emma O'Connor, about what this all could mean for the future of reproductive rights. So we're going to set that aside for a second. But, you know, listen, you and I were working together on BuzzFeed LGBT in 2015 when uh, Kennedy, you know, was the deciding vote in, in the same-sex mm -hmm. marriage cases and just huge implications. So, you know, I guess on mornings like this, with it's just— is it fair for LGBT Americans to feel nervous um, about the future of, you know, rights they feel they already have or, you know, other important issues that, you know, that there's an aspiration toward? I mean, the, the truth is, yes, it's fair. Um, it, 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 the, the Supreme Court, I mean, just uh, yesterday in the, the case about public sector unions, the, the Supreme Court overturned the 1977 precedent. Uh, that allowed for public sector unions, government unions, to charge fees, agency fees, of non-union members. Uh, that was a 1977 precedent, and the court overturned it. Um, but the, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, our, our colleague Dominic Holden has written a lot about this, that the, the, the more likely route that the court will be taking uh, that that the the right, the Alliance Defending Freedom, and groups that have had fought marriage equality previously, uh, that that they're already trying to take is is advancing these these items that that do continue an element of of making same sex couples marriages second. These these uh, right of refusal, these recusal statutes, items that allow county clerks not to perform marriages if somebody else in the office can. Uh, the, the, obviously, the cases like the, the Baker case, this Arlene's Flowers case out of Washington. Um, they, the, this idea that uh, there, there are exceptions in the law to the right that was handed down in Obergefell uh, that allowed same-sex couples to marry across the nation. Uh, there, there now could be five votes to sort of allow allow some exceptions to that. That effectively, uh, in, in some venues, in some ways, water down or or turn that into a sort of a, a second degree right. Um, and that that could obviously have sort of a ripple effect and a, a stigmatization effect and all of that, that that I think a lot of LGBT groups are going to have to be uh, closely tracking and, and I know will be really strongly fighting in the coming months and years ahead. Right. Well, that's where we are as of this morning. We're going to let you go so you can get back, I imagine, into the Supreme Court. <laughs> you have a lot of work to do. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks, guys. I have a tweet here from Jess. Uh, she tweeted, totally agree with Chris Geithner that Roberts uh, may be our future swing vote. I suspect he doesn't want the court to go all the way right and will try to be a moderating influence. Uh, we will see. Yeah, hearing a lot of people say that, but like you said, we will see. Uh, let's turn now to Roe v. Wade. Groups on both sides of the abortion debate are already gearing up for the fight over Roe v. Wade. Anti-abortion group Susan B. Anthony List tweeted this quote from Vice President Mike Pence. I long for the day that Roe v. Wade is sent to the ash heap of history, with the group commenting, it looks like this may happen sooner rather than later. Meanwhile, pro-abortion pro rights group NARAL tweeted this, we will not go back to the days when abortion was illegal in this country. We will fight back every single day. Emma O'Connor, who covers reproductive policy here at BuzzFeed News, joins us now. Emma, good morning. 
Hi guys, how's it going? All right. You know, it's a Thursday. We're here. Uh, we're yeah. here. We're here. Why did, did something happen? <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. Uh, you spoke with representatives from Planned Parenthood and Susan B. Anthony List. How did these groups receive the news that Kennedy is retiring? Well, so this has been like a super vicious fight for a long period of time. Um, and I think it's just this is where the, the shit has hit the fan, essentially. Um, they are obviously having very opposite reactions. I think SBA list has a plan of action to um, really like push forward uh, all of the justices that are pro-life that are on that list that we keep talking about. Um, and Planned Parenthood is just preparing to fight. And I think they didn't give me a lot of information, but they're actually having a rally like literally right now, 10 a.m. started 12 minutes ago outside of Congress about this. So they just are diving straight into it. Right. It's, it's fascinating, like just immediate transformation of, yeah. of the landscape. Well, let's get into the difficult questions raised by this announcement. What would overturning Roe v. Wade actually look like in practice? So I think there, I've seen a lot of kind of uh, misconceptions on Twitter that it, it could happen really quickly. Um, it won't be immediate. It's not going to be immediate, but it also won't take that long. Um, there have been Republican legislators all over the U.S. and conservative states uh, preparing for this moment, basically, by passing these laws like a six-week ban on abortion in Iowa that they knew that they would immediately be sued for by Planned Parenthood. Um, so those cases have to climb up to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court has to take all of its sweet time, which it does, to make that decision. Uh, but also it depends, like, what case gets there, because it... it could be a complete overturning of Roe v. Wade, which means not that there would be a ban on abortion, but that it would be up to each state to decide, or it could be a slow kind of chipping away case by case of abortion rights, depending on just like what decisions the Supreme Court is making. Hmm. All right, I I've got to ask, how many states in the U.S. right now, is abortion basically effectively already unavailable? So, there are six states that only have one abortion provider um, in the whole state. So it's available in every state, but because it's only one for the entire state, and those are, uh, it's Kentucky, West Virginia, Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota, and Mississippi. And actually, like, while I was saying that, one of them could have closed. So who knows? But, um, and they're, like, those, those clinics are super far away from a lot of people, so they have to drive really far. They have to take time off work. Often there's a 48-hour waiting period between your first appointment and your second appointment, so you have to get a hotel to stay overnight, which is really expensive. A lot of the times there aren't abortion doctors, like, in the clinic, so they have to fly in doctors from other states. Um, so the schedules are really tight, and, like, there's a long wait, waiting periods because of lines and uh, people waiting to get abortions. So in those states, it's really, really hard already, right now. Already very quite, uh, very difficult uh, for yeah. women. Um, I guess one last question, um, you know, as, as someone who focuses on reproductive rights, are there any states in particular that are now, you know, on the threshold of a very significant change in policy at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think other than the ones I just named where it would be really easy to just eliminate that one clinic, um, I think Texas is an obvious answer. It has a very conservative, very anti-abortion legislature, Kansas, Alabama. Um, but, you know, Guttmacher Institute, it's a partisan um, research organization on abortion, but it has really good information. So if you're wondering about your state, um, you can just go to Guttmacher uh, and look up your state and it'll tell you if 
your legislature has passed a lot of really restrictive abortion laws, and they're likely to take advantage of this um, if Roe v. Wade is overturned. All right, Emma, I, I want to get back to you talking to these groups who, like you said, are, have been fighting this fight for so long. How hopeful is each group, you know, that one, they can uphold Roe v. Wade, and on the other side, that Roe v. Wade will be abolished? W what did they sound like when you spoke with them? Um, so... SBA list, which is the anti-abortion organization, really powerful one. Uh, they, you know, they sound really excited. Um, Mallory Quigley, who uh, she's the vice president of communications, she's really active. Um, she goes on the ground campaigning all the time with them, and uh, she just seemed really amped up because this is kind of the moment they've been waiting for. Planned Parenthood, as one might imagine, was a little down in the dumps about this. I think, uh, I think they were surprised. Um, like a lot of us by this news. But, you know, as I said, like they're having a rally right now with Kristen Gillibrand and Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren outside of Congress. So they turned that around pretty quickly and are, are just going into fight mode. All right. Well, Emma, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks, guys. I have a tweet here from Nichelle Stevens. It's throwback Thursday for women's reproductive rights. Whoo. God right, girl. damn. All right, let's turn now to Capitol Hill and what all of this means for the upcoming midterm elections. Henry J. Gomez tweeted, Republicans revel in the Kennedy retirement. Not only does it close the enthusiasm gap with Democrats, it just injects rocket fuel into the evangelical base. That quote was from a story by Tarini Party and Alexis Levinson. Tarini joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, guys. All right, thanks for joining us. Okay, so in your piece, you write that what is happening now is similar to the 2016 election, to which I say triggered. Okay, Tarini, um, what is the comparison you're seeing? Right, so we saw in the 2016 election that the evangelical base, the conservative base, was really motiva motivated to go out and vote for Donald Trump, even if they didn't like him because of the Supreme Court vacancy that was up. So there are a lot of Republicans who are uh, thinking that this vacancy that came out yesterday could, do, could have that same effect, where we have these red states where uh, Democrats are up for re-election and a conservative base, a conservative energized base could really make a difference in those states. So, Jereni, how did GOP senators react to this news, and are they already campaigning on it? Are they hitting the ground running? We're seeing them campaigning already on this. We're seeing a lot of Republican candidates who are taking on these Democratic senators already attacking them, uh, saying that they probably, you know, won't uh, vote for uh, Trump's, whoever Trump ends up picking for this position. Uh, we're also seeing uh, some Republicans already campaigning on this issue and fundraising off of it. We saw a Republican senator um, from Nevada send out a fundraising email trying to raise money off of this vacancy. So we're going to see in the upcoming days a lot of ads coming up as well. We're seeing outside Republican groups spending millions of dollars already on ads targeting Democrats. All right. And Kamala Harris, as Emma O'Connor mentioned, is already participating in a protest outside of Congress right now. But what else are we seeing from Democratic senators? Um, are any of them, you know, coming up with a unique strategy if they're in a tough uh, race in a red state, for example? I think it's it's going to vary. So we're seeing some Democrats focus on sort of the schedule here. We're seeing them uh, call out Mitch McConnell and say, you know, in 2016, we, we waited until after the election to uh, to confirm a Supreme Court justice. Are we going to do that again this time? So they're kind of trying to call out the majority leader here. There are other Democrats, uh, especially the ones in red states, who are, fo who are focusing more on basically saying that they're open to seeing whoever uh, the president nominates. They're going to uh, review their 
record thoroughly and, they, and then make their decision accordingly. All right, Trini, are there any Republicans who are not optimistic about the opportunities that this vacancy uh, has kind of given them uh, and, and worry that this might have a negative effect on the midterms? We did talk to some some Republicans who feel that because this uh, confirmation will likely happen, it seems, before the election, that it won't have the same effect as it did in 2016. So they feel like if the stakes are lower, Republicans won't be as motivated to go out as they were in 2016 to vote specifically based on this Supreme Court vacancy issue. All right. Well, Tarini, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, guys. All right, when we come back, don't burn it down quite yet. Uh, it's time for fire tweets. Then, then, then we can burn it down? Then we can burn it down. Then we can burn it down. Just, then just we wait. Can. Give us like 10 minutes. 10 minutes? Like three minutes. <laughs> Welcome back. We have a tweet here from Kate Dahlstrand. You said, I am curled up in my bed, surrounded by my corgis, because that seemed like the sort of self-care required. And I have a secret for you, Kate. Um, you can't see because of the cameras, but we actually just have a bunch of corgis behind <laughs> the table here. And that's what keeps me and Isaac centered. I'm just in my underwear and it's just a bunch of corgis. Yeah, nothing it's but wild. underwear, house shoes, and corgis it back here. wild. We get it. All right, let's get into these fire <laughs> tweets. Nipa, you said, $20 is like an adult dollar. <laughs> Too real. Oh, Too God, real. That's true. Every time I walk outside, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be good with money. I'm going to save money. It's like, when did things get so expensive? Remember when you were a kid right. and $1? It was like, woo, we Ooh, out here. What you we out here. <laughs> yeah, as things are going. I'm going to buy mama a house. $20 is about to be an adult penny, but, you know, that's a conversation <laughs> oh, for another day. No anyway. recession jokes. This comes from, I love this name, Nutella Enchanted. Mm. I love it. By age 35, you should have at least one fork in your cutlery drawer that you don't like and actively frown at if you accidentally grab it. Mm. That, I'm, you know, 32, working on I do have one. Yeah. But I try to push it to the back. Why do you think we don't just throw it out? I don't know. I think it seems a bit, you know, because I, I have you like might five always ones. have more guests over randomly than you expect. Mm. And then you're like, oh, God, I got to give them the, the weird fork. Is that it? I'm going to keep an eye out to make sure next time I'm at your house, I'm going to see if I get this weird fork. Lizzie Logan, you tweeted, vegans don't talk about being vegan nearly as much as good singers find ways to let you know that they're good singers. And that's the truth. That's true. That's, that's the truth. especially true for people who are good at karaoke. Mm. Can't wait. I'm not. Saeed hates karaoke. Saeed has a war on karaoke. Uh, passion. It's the only activity that people who are doing something enjoy, like actively try to pull and persuade and harass other people. You're not like riding a bike and see someone else on the sidewalk like, come ride a bike with me. Like, oh, I hate it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon Cooper. I'm just you go. <laughs> it makes me so angry. Um, if you're feeling down today, just know I wrote swag on my light switch in middle school so every morning I could wake up and turn my swag mm. on. So there's that. I might do that. I was going to say, I'm <laughs> 35-year-old man, Brandon, but... I think that is very clever. Just gonna turn my swag on every Look day. Look at me now. I like it. <laughs> Matt Bouchel, you tweeted, overheard someone on the train say they pay their rent with their credit card, so they have, like, thousands of miles it balances out. And I don't know if this is a see-something-say-something something situation or what. Yeah, that's... That's wild. Alarming. That's... I, I mean, I'm bad at finances, and I'm I, like, that's... Don't... Mm. Maybe y'all know something we don't know, but I've never, I, yeah, I think that's a First off, where are you living where you can pay rent with a credit card? 
Move it. Okay. <laughs> See, we're, we're shook. Okay, this comes up. I'm going to go with Babère. Ooh, nice. All right. Hot couple looking for a third. No sex play. We just want you to decide where we go eat. <laughs> That's my burner account. That's me and Alice. Oh, my God. Just help us decide the where indecision. we're ordering tonight. Oh, God. Good Lord. That would be so helpful. All right, here we go. Alex Goldman. All right, Alex Goldman tweeted, what was the mean name everyone called you growing up? Mine was Alex Silverwoman. Doesn't bother me now, but it was devastating at 11. Incredible. Ooh. That is so good. Ooh. That is so good. Alex Silverwoman. It took to me a second. It, it took did. me a second. It did. Too. Alex Goldman, Alex Silverwoman. I have one. Wes Said. When I was in the second or third grade, and look, Frank is like, who is it? Everyone, Wes Said. It was a whole, and it just, I, it just, Drove me crazy. Drove me nuts. I, wait. The kids at Dandy Rogers Elementary School in Dallas, Texas, just drove me crazy calling me West Side. How, how would you spell it? Just not, like West Side. Not, not that I'm going to use it oh, later, but. I, you don't want it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, here's our tweet of the day. It's from Rachel Hawkins. <laughs> I just dropped a full, huge jar of spaghetti sauce on the kitchen floor, and it shattered when it hit the tile, and the mess was so big that for a second I considered just walking away from a house, from my family, from my life, from the oregano-scented horror I had unleashed. Mm. Dang. Rachel, a move. That, let's just. Let's leave it with that. Up next, we're talking to Ohio Congressman <laughs> Tim Ryan. We've got a lot of questions for him, so we're looking forward to it. Stick around. We're going live from the district with Congressman Tim Ryan, a Democrat from Ohio. Congressman, good morning. Good morning. Great, great intro music there. <laughs> Thank you very much. Glad you like it. All right, so um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's upset win over Joe Crowley, of course, was a shock to a lot of people and certainly Democratic leadership. But, uh, Congressman, we wanted to ask you, is Nancy Pelosi right to say that Democrats should not be, you know, overreacting to this result? Well, it is one race, but I think it's, you know, it's, it cuts both ways for those of us who are good friends and have worked with Joe for a long time. Uh, it's sad, but it's also exciting to have new, young, uh, dynamic members of the Democratic caucus that could potentially come in. I uh, associate with the sentiment, too. When I first ran, I ran uh, as a 28-, 29-year-old. I ran against two uh, congressional and long-term incumbents and one. And I think there's a lot of value to what those candidates can bring to our caucus. I don't know if you can read into it, but Certainly, I think it's, uh, it shows there's a lot of energy in Democratic uh, primaries and among the Democratic base, and I think that's going to serve us well as we move into the fall. Okay, and to that point, are you confident that Democrats can take back the House with Pelosi as a leader? Well, I, you know, I think it's, it's tougher, I'll be honest with you, uh, you know, because there are a lot of places where she's not very popular, and the Republicans continue to tie our Democratic candidates uh, to uh, House leadership, and I think that, that potentially is something that, that we need to overcome. And, you know, so moving forward, we saw guys like Connor Lamb and candidates like Connor Lamb distance themselves from leadership. And I think there also is an opportunity there because it shows some independence. It shows that you're going to represent your district. It shows you're not going to just toe the line and necessarily be a part of the establishment, but that you're going to push for the kind of change that we need. So within that, there's also opportunity for candidates. Opportunity. Uh, Congressman, would you challenge Nancy Pelosi again? 
you know, I'm not ruling anything out at this point, uh, but, you know, as I said uh, a year, a year and a half ago, you know, I thought we needed uh, some change and, you know, we're going to, I think uh, my opinion on that has not changed at all. Uh, but, you know, we're limited in Congress as to uh, what we can do midterm. Um, but I, I'm not ruling anything out, but there's a lot of other candidates that are out there uh, talking about it, too. I think there's a lot of conversations happening now post uh, the Joe Crowley race as to what direction we really want to go in as a party. And I think it's important that we recognize that the Democratic base and I think the country as a whole is clamoring for some change. And I think we have a responsibility uh, to give them that change. All right. Well, Congressman, here's a tweet from you. Mitch McConnell should follow his own precedent and forego any vote on a replacement for Justice Kennedy until after the American people have had their voices heard in the midterms. Do you think, Congressman, that Mitch McConnell cares at all about being consistent with the precedent he set? No, he doesn't. And he doesn't care what I think, I have to be honest with you. <laughs> um, you know, he he. Uh, he, he, the Republicans are, are classic for applying one set of standards to the Democrats when they're in and then having a completely different set of standards when they're in. They use power a thousand times better uh, than we do and there's no question that they're going to get a nominee and they're going to get a nominee uh, who they're going to put up front and put on a pedestal and motivate their base with that same nominee. And I will just say in contrast, you know, another decision that came out of the court uh, yesterday was the Janus decision, which is gutting public sector unions. You know, when Democrats were in charge, we had an opportunity to support unions, to help grow the union movement, which in many ways is the backbone of the, of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Caucus, not, not just here in DC, but in states all across the United States. We failed to pass card check. We failed to really buttress the unions in a way that would allow them to grow. And right now, unions are most popular uh, among young people, 20-somethings, 30-somethings. So we have an opportunity here. But my, my pitch, my point, is that when Democrats get in charge, we've got to do the kind of things that are going to help us build our party so that we can represent working class people, we can give opportunity to people, we can take care of the issues on education, health care, all the things we believe in. But when you get in power, you've got to support those people who helped you get there. Republicans do that way better than we do. And, and we better get on the stick because I don't know how you all feel, but I'm getting pretty tired of playing defense all the time. And it seems like all we do is play defense down here. Supreme Court decisions that came down uh, the other day, we've got to start playing offense as a party, and, and that means taking care and supporting all of the different groups that, that do so much to support us. Well, yeah, I was just really struck by that, and someone's already tweeted about it, you saying the Republicans use power a thousand times better than the Democrats do. To that point, uh, what can the House do at this point to protect uh, reproductive rights in anticipation of a potential reversal of Roe v. Wade? Well, I, I think that's another reason why they want to jam this Supreme Court uh, nominee uh, before the election, if they possibly can. Um, you know, look, I mean, Kennedy was a conservative, economic conservative, but he, on a couple of the social issues, uh, he voted where I think the, the vast majority of the country is. Something tells me that President Trump is not going to put a nominee up there that is as moderate on issues like Roe v. Wade. He's going to put an extreme conservative. So again, you know, there's, we're limited because we don't have the power. And, and so, you know, we've got to try to win some of these Senate elections uh, in the in the fall. 
Um, but if they do something before that, we're really going to be hamstrung. But what we can do is continue to get our voice out there. There are a lot of moderate Republican women and men, quite frankly, who are pro-choice. And so I think we need to continue to make the argument to them that overturning Roe v. Wade is a big, big, big mistake. And do they really want to be a part of, the, of, of a political party who continues to get the government interfering in women's health? Um, a, a, a political party that has become blatantly racist, uh, a, a president who consistently lies and misleads, a, a, a president who is compromised in so many different ways. Uh, you know, we've got to start making the argument not just to our base or not to the liberal base, but we've got to start making the argument to, you know, conscientious, moderate. Republicans who love their country and don't want to see the, the basic institutions and ideas and values that we have as a country that we all share uh, unwound because of this president. Right. And, and again, to that point, you know, as a, someone who represents the great state of Ohio, I am curious uh, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, if that reality, you know, does come to pass, uh, what kinds of restrictions on abortion are you most concerned about seeing um, in Ohio? Well, Ohio has some of the worst abortion laws in the entire country right now, so it's hard to imagine uh, it could get uh, any worse. Um, so, I, I, you know, for, from our vantage point, it may be uh, almost as bad as it, it can possibly get. Uh, but undoing Roe v. Wade puts us in a, in a terrible position for women to be able to control their own bodies and to have a bunch of white men, Republican, uh, in Washington, D.C., telling women what they can and can't do with their body is outrageous. And, and that's where we are because we have kept, we continu continually lost elections. And, and this, this is, you, you don't run and you don't play politics just to get elected. It's not a game. It's, it's, it's a process to get into political power, to have political power. And we've been losing that game. We've been losing that process. And so a lot of these chickens now are coming home to roost. Uh, they, they've been coming in states, quite frankly, for a long time. You know, in Ohio, as I said, with the abortion laws, with the, the right to work laws across the country. And now, because of the long-term strategy that the Koch brothers and all of these conservative slash libertarian think tanks and all the, all the conservative money has been putting behind these initiatives and the systems that they put in place for the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, now it's all coming to Washington, D.C. Now the court is ruling in their favor they, because they've been able to get power. And so we've got to be very, very smart politically on how we get back into power, not for power's sake, but because we want to start taking care of all the people that have been ignored, left behind, whether it's criminal right, justice, yeah, immigration, working class people. we got to get back into power. Congressman, strong, strong words, but let's talk about immigration. The Republicans' latest bill failed spectacularly yesterday. Uh, you visited a detention center in Texas and saw the impact of family separations firsthand. Is there any chance, you know, you're talking about fighting, but let's talk about getting things done. Is there any chance Congress can pass something before the midterms? I'm not optimistic. I just think that the president, and he's as much, he said this, he wants immigration to be an issue. Uh, he wants to use it as a wedge to intentionally divide, to use race and color as, as a political weapon. 
and he does not want to solve this problem. So I am not optimistic because the Republicans in the House and the Senate do just about everything that Donald Trump says, you know, and, and, and so he wants to use this as a weapon in the fall. Check his tweets, check what he said. He said, we, we shouldn't deal with this until after the election. And I guarantee even after the election, he'll kick the can down the road because he's going to want to use it for his reelection. All right, Congressman, you had your coffee this morning. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Later in the show, I'm going to speak with Tommy Obaro about the new rom-com, uh, Set It Up. Um, we got a lot more news and entertainment yeah. and culture and everything this morning. Stay tuned. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yesterday, Pittsburgh police officer Michael Rossfeld was charged in the shooting death of Antoine Rose II, a 17-year-old unarmed black teenage boy. Fred Rabner, attorney for the victim's family, joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I want to start here. Antoine Rose was shot and killed by Officer Michael Rossfeld after he ran from a traffic stop. As an experienced Pennsylvania defense attorney, were you surprised that the police officer was actually charged with criminal homicide for this fatal shooting? You know, for those of you who haven't seen the video, once you see the video, uh, what you see is unmistakably a murder. Uh, you see an officer poised uh, approximately diagonally from the front door of a vehicle. Uh, you see a young man uh, run out of the passenger side of the vehicle away from the officer, 20, 30, maybe more feet away. You see an officer without hesitation, without hollering, stop or I'll shoot, Un shoot three different times, striking him in the back as he runs down, uh, runs away, uh, throwing him to the ground, killing him. So while what we see on the video is unmistakably a murder, uh, I'm not surprised. Uh, the only reason that we even have this discussion, and, and I think the question begs the discussion, what are other people thinking? What are the people thinking uh, that look at that and have to say, well, what did Antoine Rose do wrong? Why must the officer have done that? Because really, those, of, those individuals who uh, you know, understand what they're watching uh, the matter what the factual scenario uh, scenario is, uh, the officer's no, in no danger. Um, he has limited facts. Uh, he's not he's not in possession of facts that would would render him all of a sudden the judge, jury, and executioner on the scene of a traffic stop. Yet at the same time, he levels his gun and finds uh, Antoine Rose Jr. guilty and decides that he's going to sentence him to death. All all in a matter of moments. Um, Fred, hang on, I think we lost you there a little bit. Are you you're still with us? I do. Let's talk about the traffic stop real quick, though. Um, he, he, he was part of a traffic stop uh, because the vehicle he was in matched the description of a vehicle that was involved with a drive-by shooting uh, earlier that day. What was Antoine's involvement with that shooting? Thank you, I appreciate asking that question because we wanna clarify that. The district attorney was kind enough and the county district attorney has been in office for decades. Uh, invited the family in yesterday before he announced on the steps of the courthouse that, uh, that, that this, this individual is going to be charged with homicide. Of course, he was arrested the night before. Um, but what he told us, the first thing he did when he sat down is he looked at Antoine Rose uh, Jr.'s mom, Michelle Kenny, and he said to her, your son did nothing wrong. That was the first words out of the prosecutor's mouth, the district attorney of, uh, of uh, Allegheny County. And, and when he said that, and what Michelle Kenny really felt was 
I told you so. I've been trying to tell people. She shouldn't have to do that. But again, this is the dialogue that we have in this country. And that's why we have to have these dialogues. Uh, he said that uh, there was nothing that Antoine Rose Jr. did that he, if he had lived would have been something he'd be charged for. But keep in mind what the officer knew when he stopped his vehicle, a vehicle. He knew what vehicle he was looking for, and he knew that there was a lead shooting involved with that vehicle. Whether that shooting involved people shooting at that vehicle or people shooting from that vehicle, but there was a lead shooting in relation to that vehicle sometime prior, 10, 15, 20 minutes, maybe a half hour prior. The, the question I want everyone to think about, and, and these are for the individuals who you know, there's people that have the education or the common sense or the understanding of our due process system in our country that we're innocent unless or until proven guilty by evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that understand that you just can't make a decision on the street and shoot someone in the back. But for those of the those of the individuals who struggle, those are the people that I'm talking to right now. Mm -hmm. We can't have our officers. We don't live in communist state. We don't we're not in a police state. We can't have our officers make decisions to kill someone, use deadly force to execute someone in a sense on based on what they don't know. I, I, and, and I'm sorry, I think we lost you then. Again, Fred, are you still there? Hold on, hold on. Hold on. No, all I'm here. I'm here. All right, all right. They, 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 can't, they can't take that action based on what they don't know. <laughs> and what they didn't know here was who was involved with the shooting. Who was the individual who did the shooting? Okay. Who was the... Who was the fellow running? And I and I and I understand all that. I do want to ask uh, Michael Rossfeld, the officer uh, who, who pulled the trigger here. He was sworn in mere hours before this incident. Is it um, normal for a rookie officer to be in the field so soon? You know, that's that's a great question. I think there's a vetting process that has to go on here. Um, we're not sure what the training. What we did learn is that this police district, it's East Pittsburgh, it's not Pittsburgh, it's East Pittsburgh, it's a small police department, that of the 100-plus police stage, police districts that the Allegheny County DA's office prosecutes for, they're the only district that he's ever known about in the 20-plus years that he's been the prosecutor that don't have SOPs, which are standard operating procedures. This police district did not even have standard operating procedures. So to answer why this officer was in the field, that at that point, I can't state. He might have had some training in the field prior. This was his first technical shift uh, that he had ever served. He was allegedly 90 minutes into his first shift. But when you learn the history of this officer, it's going to be unmistakably why he did it. Well, because let, he had. A, let's okay. get let's get into that history. Uh, you you yourself tweeted. We look forward to exposing the truth about Rossfeld's egregious and heinous past history of physical abuse. Holy against young black men throughout his law enforcement career. We won't rest until he is shown in his truest racial, racially motivated form. Uh, what details about Officer Rossfeld's past led you to believe that this shooting was racially motivated? Let me state this, uh, thank you. Let me state this ahead of time. What I've learned through my investigators for officers from the pit uh, police that have only been willing to talk off the record so far and what other other news agencies, as, as well as Sean King, uh, have uncovered uh, is essentially that the bulk of officers that are speaking off the record, and we're learning that uh, the files were turned over from the Pitt Police to the Allegheny County DA's office, and my legal team is taking steps now to effectuate whatever documentation needs so that those files can become in our possession. But what we understand those files will show is 
essentially that this fellow had a history of beating people, whether that the, the, the level of beatings were varied. Uh, and then he had, a, he had a habit of falsifying the reports on those beatings to avoid detection. Only we understand this to be true, and we don't have the evidence yet, but we, we believe that the files will show that the only reason, uh, the, final, the final straw that broke the camel's back with this University of Pittsburgh stint was the, that he beat the son of the chancellor's administrative assistant, and that was too, too much to overlook. And then when they went back and looked at that arrest, the video or the, 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 the body cam or there's some camera that they use in their system did not jive with the falsified report. But instead of terminating him and sending a red flag up to all other police agencies about what this fellow had in his heart, a black heart, a darkness that he was trying to attack people, a, a hatred, and not only that, a racially motivated hatred. Instead of doing that, they swept it under the rug. They let him voluntarily resign is our understanding. Now, this is not confirmed yet. We believe they let him voluntarily resign and that allowed him to get another police job. So we're not only looking at East Pittsburgh, their lack of procedures, this officer's behavior, which is criminal. And that's the district attorney's job to handle. My job is to find out and to help them along the lines of this prosecution, but also to look at the, at the failures that occurred, because in order to change, you know, what's the definition? of insanity, right? So if, if we continue to do the same things and expect a different result, uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not insane, at least not yet. I might be after a few more of these cases. But in the interim, I'm going to try to make sure that the system is getting better, that these individuals have to be vetted. No one knows the bad apples. And I, and I, do, the- I do think a lot of people want to see an improvement of the justice system. I want to ask this uh, before we let you go. Uh, Officer Rossfeld is out on bond right now, despite being charged for a criminal homicide. What do you think of the judge's decision? Well, I've been doing this 22 years. I graduated law school in 95. I was a prosecutor. I've been doing this 22, maybe 23 years. I've handled a number of uh, homicides, maybe 10, 15 homicides myself, maybe 20. Uh, I've never had anyone released on a non-secured bond in in my entire career, nor do anyone I does any do I know anyone who does what I do that has seen that? Not only that, it was a magistrate who he was arraigned by, who's not a judge. He set a two hundred fifty thousand unsecured bond. That same magistrate, Regis Welsh, if you get a traffic ticket in his borough, you pay fifty dollars to get a hearing as collateral. So he treated it less significantly to me than a traffic ticket on my rate, but. I don't let, I'm not going to let anger uh, choose my course. I have to figure out what what I would want to do to bring light to that. And first of all, is telling you guys. But I think it's really the prosecutor's decision to see how they want to handle it, because this is a criminal prosecution and I have to stay out of the way. Uh, but I, I'm going to do my work uh, with my with with my ends in mind. And and he's going to have to answer some questions to me one day. And do your work and do your work for Antoine's family. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Sorry about the technical difficulty, and I appreciate your patience. No, we appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us. Don't worry about it. Keep bringing light to this issue. I appreciate you. And and we will. We'll be keeping an eye on this story, obviously, as it develops. Uh, Stay tuned. More AM to DM in just a moment. All right, welcome back. Hannah Orenstein tweeted this, set it up is the most delightful movie I have ever seen. And between that and Queer Eye, I have a new theory about entertainment, 
Joy is in, question mark? Okay, I certainly agree. Uh, we need a little joy this morning, or maybe a lot of joy. So here to talk about the joy that is Netflix has set it up is Tomi Obaro, cultural editor here at BuzzFeed. Hey, sister girl. Hey. Hey, okay, I... I, fed her, I fell head over heels in love with this movie. I've watched it one and a half times already. Wow. Yeah. So let's talk about it. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that it's very much a, an homage to, to um, rom-coms, a lot of references. Mm -hmm. um, but it does feel fresh. Mm -hmm. um, how does it kind of pull this off? So, I mean, I think one of the things that makes Set It Up so great is that it feels very current, mm -hmm. it feels very modern. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in part because they were intentional about making the movie feel millennial. Mm -hmm. So, those plot points, you have like the two main characters, they're working as assistants, it's filmed in New York and it mm -hmm. looks like it's clearly filmed in New York. They're like struggling a little bit in that like cute movie way right. where it's like they have like a roommate and uh -huh. you know, they uh -huh. have to get free chips from the restaurant yeah. because they can't afford entrees. That was a fun scene. And yeah, and they're like trying to figure out their lives mm -hmm. in a way that feels very like, it me, like in, mm -hmm. in 2018. Yeah. And like there's great chemistry between all of the actors. And we're going to talk about that. Chemistry is just incredible Absolutely. in this movie for everyone. Um, I felt like uh, the movie benefits from the fact that its audience grew up watching The Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, right. And sure. so it seems significant, like watching Assistance, and we've yeah. watched that, and, and, and that we're, we're ready to mm -hmm. watch Assistance kind of go through it and fall in love. But yeah. I also wanted to talk about what are some of the other tropes uh, um, mm -hmm. that we see in, in um, Set It Up? Because I, I don't watch a lot of romantic comedy, actually, so ah, I might not okay. have noticed them all. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, at first, like the most important thing is that at first they kind of hate each other. Yes. So there's always like that tension of like, mm -hmm. oh, I hate you, but I kind of secretly maybe want to fuck you a little bit. Um, so yeah, then she, she definitely... On, she, she immediately is like... Yeah, there's like a lot, there's a lot of tension between them yeah. at first. And uh, then, of course, there's like a grand plan and a scheme mm -hmm. that they're working towards yeah. that's like a little bit morally icky. And mm -hmm. then one of them becomes a higher person, the better person. Mm -hmm. And then they make up. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that is, is a factor. And then they have a great supporting cast as well. Absolutely. And let, let's talk about the supporting cast. Listen, no secret here, I love Pete Davidson. I love him, I love him. <laughs> I was following him on Instagram well before the engagement. Um, but, yeah. right. <laughs> but but sidekicks mm -hmm. are, are an important part um, of romantic comedy. So, you sure. know, he was great. What stood out about his performance to you? I mean, he's just really funny. He's and like, just like physically, you know, he's very tall and like awkward looking. Mm -hmm. It looks like he spends all night like playing video games. Yes. It has like bags under his uh -huh. eyes. And they're, they're casting him as like a gay guy when he's mm -hmm. very like, yeah. laconic is kind of, uh -huh. it's like an interesting twist. He made me think of Adam Paley's character. On, yeah, totally, uh, in Happy, Happy Endings. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. And that he has, I love that it was like, there was a gay character mm -hmm. who is a part, but also has a, has a life. Yeah. Like it's, it's clear he has relationships, he yeah, has a job like and everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like he's always hooking up with guys. Yeah. And like, he's not just an accessory. His delivery is very, like, you know, cool. I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm, I'm just here, guys. I'm, yeah. You know, and his chemistry. And, and let's talk yeah. more about the chemistry. Here's a tweet from Danielle. You had to say, uh, can Glenn Powell and Zoe Deutsch uh, be the new Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan of this century, please? I mean, they... They are really good together. They are really good. They what are. is it about the chemistry? Like, how does it, what stands out? I, I don't know. know. Chemistry is ineffable. It you truly know, can, we, can we really define chemistry? Yeah. I mean, we just know that it's there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in, in the piece that we published on Reader, actually, the mm -hmm. writer, Christine O'Neill, she talks to a, points out a Hollywood Reporter article mm -hmm. where they talk about how, like, yeah, there was insane chemistry on mm -hmm. set. And we sort of, like, had to, like, damp it down a little bit at first. So it was Ooh. clear that, like, oh, they hated each other. And then they grew to love yeah. each other. 
together. Yeah, but I think they're also just both good actors. They're very wonderful. I mean, it's great. Sweet. They are wonderful. Yeah. Um, and they do a good job, I think, if you believe that they are very platonic at first. Yes. It's yes. not so obvious they're going to yes. fall in love, and then you see it happen. We yes. also have to pay homage to Lucy Liu. Lucy. And Tay Diggs. Uh, but mostly Lucy Liu. Lucy they're, they're a huge part of the movie. Uh, yeah, just... she is amazing in it. Like, the way that she delivers her lines mm -hmm. and just like her posture and those cheekbones, <laughs> like just everything is just. It's just. Uh. Yeah, and just walking, walking. Tay Diggs is fine. I mean, it's interesting His because. His character is a jerk. He so is, like, he yeah. has been in so many like seminal black rom coms. Mm -hmm. And so to see him playing someone who's like all sleeves yeah. is interesting for that reason because he just really leans into the dickishness, which is kind of funny. Absolutely. And it's I not for nothing like seeing people of color in. Yeah, know, that was the other big thing too. And it's like, yeah, the people of color are the bosses. Yeah. yeah I, I love it. All right. Well, uh, listen, uh, people are already calling for a sequel. I want, I want a whole franchise, frankly. I tweeted this. I would happily watch a sequel to set it up that's just Lucy Liu's character on vacation in southern France, right, just having a good time. Because, again, I would, she deserves. Yeah. She deserves. So we wanted to ask you guys on Twitter, what would you want to see from a set it up sequel, you know, like a Pete Davidson spinoff? Who knows? Let mm -hmm. us know. Yeah. Tommy, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we tweeted out a link to BuzzFeed Reader's new essay about it. You can keep reading, all right? Uh, when we come back, more AM to DM. We're going to find out which celebrity sold their souls to the devil in order to stay ageless. Yeah, that's, that's where we are. Welcome back. Yesterday, Mindy Kaling tweeted, Paul Rudd has been handsome for 40 years and is still, somehow, still looks 32. Sylvia Obel, BuzzFeed News' entertainment reporter, is here to round up our favorite ageless, ageless celebs and maybe their skincare routines. Oh. Good morning. Good morning, girl. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. First of all, how old do you think Paul Rudd actually is? Paul Rudd, to me, has looked a solid 32 his whole life. Uh -huh. He really has. <laughs> I mean, but he doesn't look as old, but then I remember that he was in Clueless. Uh -huh. And I was like, damn, that was a long time ago. Yeah. So I feel like he's got to be pushing 50 at this point. Yes, so he's actually 49. <laughs> Woo! ARP is knocking <laughs> on his door next year. Oh my They're God. coming for him. It's really impressive, especially considering that he's white. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I was just like, this is amazing. Did you see what happens when you mind your business and don't call the cops on black people? This is very... You age well. <laughs> <laughs> very, very, very true. And, I mean, we love a nostalgic moment. What do you think makes it so great about celebrities transcending time and staying in the spotlight? I just think, I mean, I think it speaks to their talent. I mm -hmm. mean, especially because in Hollywood, there's always somebody new coming up. Exactly. There's always somebody trying to take your spot. And I think you really have to um, resonate with an audience to be able to have people wanting to bring you back and back. And you have to have a, a really good facialist to be able to keep up with these young girls every day. You gotta stay relevant. You really have to stay relevant. And so, yeah, I think, and I think in the age of social media, it's getting even harder for older stars because new celebrities are doing more to get attention than maybe they've ever had to do or want to do mm -hmm. even, where it's like now you see people like Halle Berry giving us like Instagram posts here or there, and she's probably just like, oh, you know, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> so we want to bring up a few of our favorite ages celebs, and we're going to put your detective skills to the test. Oh. And we have to ask you to guess the year, and we're going to give you a two-year grace period. Oh. Are you okay. ready? Okay, so okay. how old they are or the year it was taken? The year the photo was taken. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, first up, we have Gabrielle Union. Okay, my girl. All right. Oh, this is gonna be the hardest. What year do you think this photo was taken? 
Oh, you get a two-year grace period. Could have been taken in 1952, for all I know. I think... 1878. 1878. <laughs> I think, uh, I feel like it's a Bad Boy 2 era, but I can't figure out what year that might have been, like 2008, 9? Uh, sorry, 2003. Oh. Dang! Was that yes, Bad Boy listen, 2 this photo could have been taken this morning, or like I taken. said, 1878, okay? 1985. All right. <laughs> Next up, we have Keanu Reeves. What year was this taken? Oh, this looks like a newer Keanu, because he's like, I don't know, you know. Hmm. I would say 2015. Okay, yes, it's 2017. Okay, so I guess you got it right. Okay. You were in the, the, the year, uh, two-year grace period. Awesome. Nice. Okay, now we have Halle Berry. Halle. Halle Berry. Only in the house with Halle, the black woman, are their hairstyles. Um, Halle is longer now. So if her hair is this short... I'm gonna give it early millennium, like 2002. You got it, 2001. Yes! You got it within a year off. Really you good. Thought, Listen, I was gonna fail this whole test. I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> You're doing good. Okay, next we have John Stamos. Uncle Jesse. What year do you think this was taken? Whew, I'm just gonna throw out like a, a 2010 because I have no clue. Uh, it was taken this year, 2018. Oh, this man is 54 years old. Good for you, John. He's living his best Good life. Good for you, Uncle Jesse. Okay, next we have <laughs> Mr. I don't age himself, Pharrell. <laughs> Where is the fountain of youth, Pharrell? What year do you think this photo was taken? Good Lord. Well, he's just a little calmer than he does now. Hmm. Pharrell is really, let me tell you something. He's ridiculous. <laughs> he's ridiculously young looking all the time. I'm going to say 2016. Nope. 2003. 2003. 2003. 2003. Yes, yes. Okay. Last uh, up, we have Lorenz Tate. Lorenz never aged. What Tate. year do you think this photo was taken? Okay, I feel like I the, all the other ones have been a little bit earlier in the millenniums. I'm gonna come back to the new the newer end of the millennium, and say like 20, 15, 17. Uh, no. Nope. 2005. Uh, well, listen, guys, I, I, you know what's crazy, though? All the blacks fooled me. Why? Listen, listen. black don't crack. Black don't crack ever. <laughs> they don't. Did you expect these celebrities to have their longevity in their careers like they do? Some. Not all. I think I'm, I was pleasantly surprised to see Lorenz mm -hmm. because I think for a lot of black actors who were in their prime in the 90s, it was really nice to see him come back and do power, and which, you know, comes back soon. And, you know, all of those Plug. things. <laughs> you know, it was nice to see him again because I was like, oh, Lorenz, you know, because usually those stars stay there. It's hard for black actors to get that type of uh, rewind. Hallie, I feel like I always knew she was going to be a mainstay, especially after they gave her that Oscar. Mm -hmm. um, Gabby, I feel like... You know, she was smart to do the balance between getting into the white teen audience with like yeah. those movies and then also the black audience. Yeah. Uncle Jesse, I don't think so. I don't think Uncle Jesse, listen. John Stamos, I'm shocked that he's still around, I Hilarious. guess. Hilarious. Well, listen, <laughs> these celebrities don't age and they will forever be looking 12. So Forever. Sylvia, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Twitter, we want to hear from you. Who is a celebrity you thought would stay on top a lot longer than they did? Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Up next, Isaac and Saeed reply to your tweets. Welcome back. 
I've said it before, I've said it again. Steven Miller and I are the same age. <laughs> Your favorite fact. Flawless. Flawless. Do you have like a skincare routine? How are you, how are you gonna pull off the Paul Rudd look? <laughs> How are you gonna be looking come 49? I drink water. I think I think Sophie's right. You mind your business. Mm, Listen, mm. racism is terrible for crow's feet, darling. Okay. <laughs> you don't want those Jim Crow feet. You don't want it. Oh, no. Right. <laughs> oh, oh no. There's some beauty. Oh too. no. Who who in the audio department applauded that? Oh. Thank you, Dan. Oh. Tip for the children. No. Uh-huh. Uh-uh. Bad for wrinkles. Anyway. God, <laughs> Let me read this too. Right. Okay, so we asked you, uh, where were you or what are you doing when you learned about Justice Kennedy's retirement? Uh, huge news, of course. Mrs. Smith says, made the mistake of looking at Twitter after hearing about the retirement, got depressed, drank a bottle of wine, passed out at 8 p.m. Well, you know, that's most of my evenings at this point, but I... <laughs> I get it. It's a lot. It's yeah, a lot it, to process. And I think a lot of people shared that same kind of evening. Uh, talking about SCOTUS, Jess says, totally agree with Chris Geithner that Roberts may be our future swing vote. I suspect he doesn't want the court to go all the way right and will try to be a moderating influence. Um, and again, we mentioned this on the show. Mm -hmm. We talked with Chris Geithner about this. Good to have hope. Uh, who knows how these things are going to play out? And, the, you know, these people are the justices of the Supreme Court for a reason. And uh, people have, a lot of people have been saying that that's the kind of the path that Roberts might take. Yeah. I, I don't even know if hope's a word. I'm just like, well, you know, anything can happen at this point. We'll just figure it out as we go along. That's all I got. Mm -hmm. That's all I got. Not exactly negative and giving up. Just like, you know, it's... Everything's so unpredictable. Who knows what's going to happen? Tanya Melinda's had this response to Congressman Tim Ryan of Ohio. I agree with everything the congressman is saying, but also the difference in 2016 was 40,000 votes. Uh, we need to get the vote out better than the GOP in 2018. That's the entire ball game. Get out the vote campaigns. I was trying, I thought I was really interested in his candor mm -hmm. um, about talking about uh, the fact, as he said, the Republican Party is 100,000 times better at like kind of using their powers strategically than the Democratic Party. And I I just, I think that's an observation. I think that's just like a clear... No, it clearly is an observation. I mean, to hear the congressman, to sit, hear Tim Ryan say that on air, to hear him say basically that we, when we get the power, need to be better at using it and playing basically the games that the GOP seems to dunk on the Democratic Party with all the time, yeah. which is saying, oh, well, you do this, but it's... I'm going to act this way. Yeah. However you feel about the impact, and obviously people feel a lot about it, uh, Mitch McConnell's gambit uh, with, you know, basically holding that that seat hostage, uh, you know, towards the end of President Obama's, like, look, look at the impact of yeah. that. Like, it paid wild. off. It's it, wild. It so. paid off. Oof. And after today's news, Rachel Hay Girlfield says, I could use a group hug, actually. We need some turnaround good news soon. Listen. Take me back to the big dick energy news cycle. Take was, me back. That was just yesterday. Round trip. That was really just, <laughs> just yesterday. You can keep I it going. miss it. You want to do that? Like, uh, I miss it. You want to say your boom boom? Uh, well, here's the thing. <laughs> On my boom boom. You said boom boom, sex boom boom. Oh, yes, yeah, sex that's, boom. That's like two weeks um, ago. I have important data. You know, I ran some polls yesterday, both on Instagram and on Twitter, because an important question was, does Drake have big dick energy? Resoundingly, he does not. I think in both it was like 70% no. According to the polls. Yep.
according to the and one of one of the voters in that was Shawnee Hilton. I saw she voted. No one. With that. public uh, service announcement, if you vote on an Instagram poll, you should know that Saeed knows exactly how you voted. It's Just uh, don't on any poll, on any Instagram poll, I know the result. Don't anyway. snitch on yourself. Uh, listen, thank you so much to Congressman Tim Ryan, Chris Geithner, Emma O'Connor, Tarini Party, Tommy Obaro, Chantel Fons, Sylvia O'Bell, and Fred Rabner for joining us today. Tomorrow's Friday. It's Friday. We've got that. We've got, we've got that. <laughs> we'll be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Till then.